Make the case. Why should we feel bad for these millennials? I'm broke. Anybody else broke? So the numbers in terms of earnings speak for themselves, but that's really only the beginning of their problems. Student debt. No work ethic. Housing. No job. Credit card debt. No discernible skills. Are you have insufficient funds. Well, that's a good way to put it, too. I agree with that. Welcome to Insufficient Funds, the podcast where we discuss the things we're interested in, but quite frankly don't know too much about. In other words, two broke millennials trying to increase wealth of knowledge to compensate for a lack of actual wealth. (laughs) I'm RJ. And I'm Jess. Today we're going over a super enlightening chat we had with guest Andre Gagné, a sociology professor with a focus in extremism and social identity at Concordia University in Montreal, and author of Is Donald Trump Emboldening Extremists in Canada? An article that piqued our interest on McLean's. In our chat with Andre, we set out to discuss his article and the issue of Trump's rhetoric bleeding into Canadian culture, but by the end of it, we were thrilled to find we had not only uncovered that, but so much more. (laughs) (laughs) First, though, a bit of background on Andre. He was born and raised in Montreal, Quebec, and recalls, I guess what you could say would be an interesting time growing up with increasing linguistic tensions. In Quebec, there wasn't any law at the time preventing people from actually going to English school, uh, especially native Quebecers right. who are French-speaking. Uh, today, that is that is a problem because they, they actually want to make sure that the, uh, the French language is protected. So people that are uh, francophones cannot go to public English uh, schools unless one of the parents has had that privilege of actually attending an English uh, institution. Mm -hmm. So at the time, that law wasn't wasn't, uh, in in effect. So my parents sent me to English school. Oh, wow. (laughs) uh, So that was very, very uh, fortunate. Uh, And I was able to send my own kids to English school because I had been to English school, so it wasn't an issue. If people want to go to English institutions, they have to go to private schools in Quebec. Uh, I I mean the francophones mainly. Mm -hmm. It's a law. Uh, it's a way for for uh, the French language to kind of be preserved because right. there, it's it's really in minority as you you're quite aware yes. in North America. So it's one way to kind of um, uh, make sure that that uh, we we keep some French in Quebec. Um, at the same time, there's there's some unfortunate. Uh, you know outcomes to that because there's there's there are Quebecers that can't they have a, a hard time speaking English, right. and of course that's unfortunate because it 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 you know closes opportunities for them. Right. I think it's it's good if we can be bilingual if we have the opportunities to be bilingual. That's that's great, and uh, my parents saw this as an advantage for me, and uh, so <laughs> that's why <laughs> today I can I can teach at Concordia and I speak English and I could so I'm very happy. What I found most interesting about this was just his like acknowledgement of the fact that there are definite issues in Quebec right now. I had no idea that that was an actual thing, like how um, French people can't choose to go to an English school unless they have parents that have English education as well. It's strange to me. Yeah. How do you feel? Yeah, it's just completely different from what we have here. We have, you have the option of doing French immersion if you want, but generally you just have uh, one French class. And you, and then when you get to high school, you do 
university French or college level French, whatever your school calls it. And so yeah, it's interesting that they're sort of forced, which is kind of opposite of Canadian values in itself yeah. in a way. Cause yeah. It's like you're kind of forced to do a certain thing. I mean, I understand. We've sort of talked about it a little bit before. I understand where they're trying to protect their culture, and that's important. It's just sort of strange that it's forced. Yep. It's 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 against. It's like we're we're English, and we're uh, everything has to be even. Where we have like all the signs are French, bilingual. and it's yeah, like everything's just generally bilingual. And obviously, English is the predominant language, but uh, there it's like. It's French and only French, kind of. And if, if you don't speak French, it's sort of rude. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, I don't know. It's just it's just different. I'm yeah. not saying that it's necessarily wrong. It's just definitely different, very different. Mm-hmm. And I think this highlighted two things from the get-go about me and my own understanding of my own country. <laughs> I don't know as much as I thought about Canada. My assumptions about the Canadian experience are very limited. I mean, I've lived in Ontario my whole life. Life I've lived in, um, you know, northern, central, and the GTA. And so, like, I thought that I had seen quite a bit, quite <laughs> a bit of different experiences. In northern Ontario, there's some French-speaking people. Central Ontario is very blue-collar, and in the GTA, it's, it's you know, it's very urban. Right. And so I thought I've seen every kind of Canadian, but um, no, I Obviously have not. not. You've seen Ontarians. Exactly. And also Andre's acknowledgement as, as a French Canadian of the fact that there are French Canadian issues that he doesn't necessarily agree with is really yeah. interesting and sort of questions my belief about um, French speaking people. So Yeah, no, I agree. And I think um, when he, and he acknowledges where that there are some negative outcomes to just forcing French people, I think that kind of hits it up, the nail on the head because, I mean, it's easy for us to say, but kind of like it or not, in English, unless you're going to stay in Quebec your entire life, English, it is important that you know English, uh, not only in Canada, but in North America and kind of around the world. English would probably be the, um, at least in the Western world, the number one spoken language. So, I don't know, it's, it's, it's almost a little bit counterproductive, but uh, protecting the culture is important. I understand that. Yeah, for me, it's like bilingualism, like he was saying, is the ideal. Obviously, right. you don't want to speak just one language. So that's why it's strange that it's like you're cuffed to yeah. just French. It just doesn't seem that productive. And mm. like you said, it doesn't seem that liberal, which is pretty, in my opinion, anti-Canadian. So it's just interesting to see the differences that exist that I honestly didn't know much know much about. Yeah, but I guess Andre also kind of has a different perspective Um for other reasons as well. He hasn't always lived in Quebec, right? Yeah, he actually spent a year abroad in Louvain, in Belgium, to finish his PhD. And while there, he was fascinated by its history of ignorance and its ongoing language frictions. Sometimes it reminded us of the linguistic battles that we have in Quebec. Oh, in Belgium. Yeah. Right. Uh, you have the Flemish people in the north, and you have the uh, Wallon. Uh, in the south, the French, and um, there are a lot of conflicts. At the time, the Belgian government managed to survive without having any prime minister for three years. What? Yeah, 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 it was crazy. Uh, And there was a lot of, uh, you know, tension, linguistic tensions. Uh, Even my, my university 
Um, in the 70s, it's, uh, the university is Université Catholique de Louvain. It's, uh, it's a university that was founded in the 15th uh, century. But in the, in the 1970s, when there was a lot of uh, linguistic, uh, you know, quarrels over language and territory in Belgium, the university itself went through a, a split where um, the Flemish uh, uh, expulsed from Louvain or Leuven, they expulsed the French from the city. Mm -hmm. And the university itself, uh, they had to uh, divide even the library amongst the French and the Flemish. So let's say you had a collection of 25 books, okay, you take volumes 1 to 12 and uh, we take volumes 13 to 25. Right. And the French, they did their own version of l'Université catholique de Louvain. They constructed another city called Louvain-la-Neuve, the new Louvain. Oh my God. It's about a 30 kilometers from the, the historical Louvain. And uh, it's, been, it's been like that since the 70s, where you have these two branches of the same university, but one is in the Francophone area, and the other one is in the Flemish area. Now it's probably not as bad as it was when we were there. Yeah. I think things are, 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 are a little better, sure. but uh, there are still linguistic uh, tensions. I, when we were there, we heard stories like people would not rent a house to French uh, occupants, wow. if uh, they were in Flemish territories, right. they wouldn't sell a house. They wouldn't, you know, they couldn't get mortgages right. because they were French. Right. We heard st stories like that. Here in Quebec, we have, we still have linguistic issues, but not to that extent. I think. <laughs> oh, but it reminded us, you know, up to a certain extent of of things that we were experiencing here in Quebec, for sure. I mean, again, right off the bat, <laughs> kind of just shows. Our ignorance. I mean, I know that's why we're doing this podcast to learn stuff we more about what we didn't know about, but this wasn't even on like our radar. Not even slightly. But, uh, so it's kind of like a double-edged sort of what I've learned through this. Not only all of this Belgium stuff was so fascinating. Like, it's one thing not to know to not know what's going on in your own country. I feel a little less bad about not what's going on, not knowing what's going on. I can't even speak. <laughs> not knowing what's going on internationally. Yeah. But. Uh, like Belgium, I just thought was this peaceful country, uh, with around like Holland and Germany. I don't even think um, I know where Belgium like, is. I, no, like <laughs> good chocolates. I, I know that's very naive, but I mean no. that's sort of all I thought of. I know it had this deep history and it had such a importance. It was such a uh, revered historical place, and I think the fact that we hear this and like the stuff about burning down the library and all the separation between the Flemish and the French. And we look at that like, wow, that's crazy. And then the fact that Andre can sort of recognize and associate with that with the Quebec experience. I mean, he obviously says that it's on a tamer level, but at the same time, just like I said, we are like, wow, that's crazy. And then he's like, well, it sort of reminded me of being a Quebec. Mm -hmm. that's, that's sort of another testament to just how different uh, things are between the lifestyles here and there yeah and it actually shows again how little i know about mm -hmm. like you said earlier how, how little i actually know about not just my own country you know about the experiences of people within our country like i i thought that as a liberal i was extremely understanding and i had this wide perspective but the reality is i have so much to learn 
And as a Libra. No, but I, I know I hate to put myself in a box like that. But I, I, I would identify as most like pretty, pretty left, pretty, pretty <laughs> left. But yeah, yeah. Um, I, I had this understanding that I was like I was understanding, <laughs> and and I'm not as understanding. And in Canada, we have these bias that we have um, that we don't talk about much, including the bias between English speaking people and French speaking people. And um, it's sort of ingrained into our culture to have this um, opposition. It's, it's, it's a strange, if you're not Canadian, it's hard to kind of know what it feels like to be like on the border of, of Ontario and Quebec and, and walk into Quebec and feel that just feeling of not being French. Or, or I suppose walking into an English speaking part of Canada and, and not speaking English. Like it's a... It's a very fine line. It's and like you're in a different country almost. It's and and that's the whole thing. Quebec yeah. has has a history of, of isolationism, which is sort of interesting that uh, Belgium has that split in it that's so clear. It is relevant to the experience in Canada. I just had no idea that French people felt so isolated. Like I yeah. honestly didn't. I, I don't oftentimes think of French people in Canada being minorities, but they really are. And the minority experience is one that uh, I, uh, I, little, I know very little about in terms of the, the French experience. Yeah, and we're both very white. Yes. <laughs> yeah, like I don't, I don't claim to be any sort of expert in that way. Um, but there are definitely parallels in the extreme feelings of isolationism, issues that are going on right now in Quebec in terms of Im- immigration, illegal yeah. immigration, and um, there are these things that not, are not necessarily uh, known to me, and, and they are sort of leading factors that cause people to have the, the extremist ideologies. I, right, I, yeah, that I, was one of the things that Angie's article kind of highlighted that we, it taught us a lot about Mm-hmm. Um, and most of the examples given in his article were of, like the examples of Canadian extremism were from Quebec. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were curious if that was because he's in Quebec and it's it's he's closer to it, he sees more of it, or if that's because he actually does see Quebec as that epicenter of extremism. I took the, the aspect of Quebec because in, in the recent news, this is what we heard more. Absolutely. But extremism, I think, is pretty much across the board. We've, we, there's a lot of extremism in, in cities like uh, Vancouver, for example. There's an interesting study that just came out uh, by Professor uh, Barbara Perry and uh, a researcher, postdoctoral researcher Ryan Scrivens that, that talks about uh, the rise of right-wing extremist groups uh, in Canada. Canada. And uh, there, there is something like a hundred groups, and you have them in uh, in in various to the various degrees in in various provinces. Right. Uh, I think there's a maybe a little more in Quebec, but it's it's basically a lot similar uh, elsewhere. In like I said, in the last, I would say, especially since the uh, the mosque shooting in in January, yeah. uh, a lot a lot of stuff have come out since that. There has been an issue with uh, uh, you know the request for a Muslim cemetery to buy a plot of land in near Quebec City. That that generated a lot of, of problems and debate amongst uh, people in that area. So of course I took I, I gave more examples of Quebec, 
I could have taken other other examples, right. but since I'm in Quebec, yeah. right. uh, I, I gave more examples of Quebec because they were they were more. I, I would say uh, not relevant, but uh, they were more um, recent right. things that we saw we've seen recently in the news. Right. So I thought it 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 corresponded well, and especially tying it to the the, the Quebec mosque shooting because. Um, the article, uh, when the pitch was sent, and I was asked to write on this article, mm. was to look at um, what's, what was happening in Charlottesville and kind of see how or if this can tie in to what we have experienced in Quebec with the mosque shooting. Right. And it's from that perspective that I engaged in, in writing this article. So from there, uh, with the Quebec shooting and everything that stemmed out of this, there was more of a kind of a Quebec angle. But I would say that extremism is, is, can be found in other provinces too, definitely. There's no, no doubt about that. To be honest, I was like kind of disappointed that he was commissioned to do the article specifically to connect Quebec with Charlottesville. I was really hoping that it was his own, like he did it of his own... Um, volition. Volition, yes, thank you. Yeah. Um, and that he had some sort of epiphany to write this article. But I, I mean, there, I'm, of course he's, he's immersed in, in, this, uh, in this topic and I'm sure he has plenty of epiphanies. <laughs> so not to discredit his, his you know, his... Um, passion for this but i was a little disappointed in that i mean what was your take on this aspect of um, the conversation i wouldn't say i was disappointed i mean <laughs> i think it like kind of makes sense like he is a professor in quebec um but that being said i agree with him like there's definitely extremism across the country obviously he knows he's forgotten more than we know about than we'll ever know about this subject you know? <laughs> Absolutely. so of course like I, I agree that there's extremism across the country i mean but on the other hand there's a there's a reason why he was asked to do an article about Quebec. Like yeah. to me, that's like there's a reason why it was he was asked to do it about Quebec and mm -hmm. in Quebec. Like you know, a it hint wasn't. Of, of, um... It's like they chose Quebec for a reason. They didn't choose Vancouver or whatever. It's, mm -hmm. So I mean, that in itself says something. I think his conclusion was that he was kind of connecting current issues together rather than it being a testament to Quebec being that epicenter of extremism I talked about. Um, so yeah, I don't know if there was a bit of like Quebec protectionism in there. I, I, he seems like a, he seemed like a very honest, straightforward guy. Um, but at the same time, it, it is probably like sort of in, in his blood to be a bit protective of Quebec. Mm -hmm. And he did acknowledge that when he's like, eh, maybe a little more in Quebec, you know? Um, but there's such a culture of, you got to protect the culture and it's, Quebec, you know, the Quebec first. So I understand not either not thinking that or not wanting to think that either way, you know? No, I, I don't think he's wrong by no, any means. No, no, not at all. I think that there might just be a hint of hesitation in, in admitting that right. French culture can somehow, because of the isolationism and uh, protection, like the, the knee-jerk protectionism, that like... It's, it's hard to admit that there's there's an issue and you know what that's also maybe a little a little there's that's a lot of bias on my part like, yeah and mine <laughs> yeah like yeah. as english-speaking people it's easy to say you know 
this is literally the definition of bias. <laughs> you know, to, to look at a culture and say, you know, it, it's your culture that's wrong. And, and I, I just, I don't know if, if this is me being biased or if this is him not admitting to, in a, in a very subtle way, maybe not subconsciously admitting to... Like a bit to, of protectionism, yeah, maybe? Yeah, yeah. Although, like we said, there's there's no doubt that this is a this is a like a, a national issue, even an international issue. Right. Yeah, um, domestic and international for sure. But in Canada, perhaps because of just the the, I I'm such apprehensive calling it culture, but Quebec does have a distinctive culture. Um, I, I feel like that has it's got to have something to do with it. Yeah. But but again. This is just, I, I, I feel like an asshole saying that. <laughs> Am I an asshole for saying that? No, I don't think so. I think everyone's entitled to their opinion and their thoughts, yeah. right? Like that's one of the things that Andre even mm-hmm. vouches for. Yeah. And it, I think one of, the part, one of the reasons that he has such a valuable perspective on these things is because he's a professor, right? Like mm-hmm. he, has, he, get, he has an interesting... Perspective. Yeah. On, on the issues at hand. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, not only does he have the other scholars and, and the other teachers to, to talk to and the other academics, he has his students. And we wondered how difficult these conversations were to have in the classroom because they can be violent. Since a lot of students are on social media, they see what's going on. Uh, a lot of them get their news through Twitter right. uh, and and other and, and other social media platforms. I, I don't. There's. I haven't experienced for myself, at least. I haven't experienced this as being a, a controversial or difficult subject to to address. In fact, students are are actually interested in trying to know where this comes from, trying to understand, okay, what's the origin? What's the context of this? How does this, where does this come from? Why are we experiencing this surge of of extremism across the world? Mm -hmm. Of course, we can talk about issues related to uh, the Islamic State and, and what has been happening in the past three, four years, but how this has spilled over into what we are experiencing with with neo-Nazi uh, uh, ideology and right-wing extremism. So they're very much interested in, in knowing more about that. As a matter of fact, I'm starting a non-credited seminar with some students on the question of political and religious extremism and violence at Concordia, and, and people are wow, you know, we, we need to talk about that. And we're going to read articles around that and, and discuss current issues pertaining to those specific, uh, uh, those specific questions. So it's not, I haven't myself experienced any kind of resistance or non, non-willingness or, or, or uh, where students find it difficult to actually deal with these issues. There's more and more people actually talking about this on Twitter. Uh, More and more articles, more and more even research uh, uh, on this because it's relevant. And I think as as scholars, it's very important. And I I tell this to my students also. I think it's very important for us as scholars to not be this this kind of ivory tower scholar where uh, you know, he's completely disconnected with the real world. Mm-hmm. For me, I have an obsession that my work has to have some kind of relevancy because, you know, I'm I'm a, in a sense as a professor, I'm pi- I'm paid by the state, and I have I have a responsibility as a professor to kind of address 
social issues and deal with that and and provide explanation commentary and and maybe uh, you know propose solutions to that so i tell that to my students too and i see this on twitter more and more i I've, i you know people that i follow uh, everybody's commenting on on these issues uh, especially what's happening down in the states with trump uh, there's not a day that we don't see anything coming out from him <laughs> that's for sure yeah. and it generates a lot of discussion uh, from from both sides of of the uh, political spectrum and it, it's fascinating many sides many sides on many yeah, sides many <laughs> so this is the part of the conversation where I really started was loving what Andre was saying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like when he was talking about the being against the ivory tower theory of teaching and um, obsessed with his work having relevance and understanding the need to promote discussion in his classroom on, classroom on both sides. Classroom. Like classroom. <laughs> my, you classroom. know. Uh, <laughs> no, I just... <laughs> thanks. <laughs> No, I just love that. Like, that's great that a professor uh, has that mindset. And um, so many times, not just in a classroom, but more so in a work setting, really, there's that ivory, to use his analogy, the ivory tower, where, like, your boss or whoever it is that's above you, just you just get looked down on or treated like you're lesser because of uh, because they're in a position of power or whatever, you know? And I think it's, it's great that he um, has that. And, and further to that, just... Um, you know, explaining about how his students are on social media, um, they know what's going on. Like he seems to be relatively in touch with with his students, which is super cool because yeah. I mean, in this day and age, everyone is super connected. And on social media, the the thing that strikes me um, is is how information, whether it's good, whether it's bad, whether it goes against or for your bias, is it's all available. Um, the one thing that, that kind of scares me, though, about social media and, and, and how a lot of people are finding, especially young people like us, uh, are finding their news on social media is that although I don't have a super like in-depth understanding of how it works, like history, cookies in your browser, your history determines what you see. So if you are more attracted to a certain, you know, a certain message, you're probably going to be fed that message quite a bit more um, or things that validate that same message. So to be in a classroom environment where you are challenged and where the news is challenged and where people with other ideas bring um, you know, challenges to or, or validation or co- just general conversation to topics that aren't necessarily being covered on a, on a broader way, at least in your perspective, um, is really important, especially when you're malleable in your youth. I think that students, you know, they are they are pretty much the hope right now <laughs> the future well I, I know it's really really cliche to say but the reality is that the world is very split right now and people that are malleable people that are actually considering alternative opinions are few and yeah. far between i think that's the thing is getting people to consider other opinions and not just be stuck in their ways and i think that's a question that i have for you i guess is uh do you think the fact that they're able to have these open discussions that aren't really necessarily where any there's any issues. I think that's because they're in this classroom setting where they're all interested in this, like they're taking this class. Or do you think that is sort of a testament to um, a youth? Do you think that's more of, yeah, like a general thing about the youth being interested in wanting to... Receptive. Receptive to this, yeah. I don't care who you are. 
this shit is so interesting. <laughs> yes. Extremism, you know, whether you're you're a gory person who's into the violent part of it, which makes you pretty much a horrible person, or whether you in, you're into the actual psychological reasons or the story, you know, I I, I think it's I, I think no matter who you are, this topic is so freaking interesting. And like on either side of, of the political spectrum, you can come at this topic with with the widest range of ideologies and still come to kind of a general consensus. Terrorism is bad. You know, extremism is bad. <laughs> yeah. And and to chat why why does this happen? Yeah. Why is it bad? Why does it happen? Yeah. Why do people take these quote unquote bad views? Yeah, I yeah. think humans are even though I am a human, sometimes I wonder <laughs> But yeah, as far as I know, I'm a human. No DNA testing to this point, but um, we are the most interesting species because of our, the fact that we are able to have critical thinking. And empathy. Yeah, and empathy. And I think that analyzing with, from the standpoint of critical thinking in an empathic topic is pretty much the ideal of using your human brain. So I think that it's freaking interesting. Yeah, basically the same question, kind of in a different worded, I guess. We basically asked him if this moderate discussion he's having in his classroom could be ascribed to a lot of his students having a bit of a left-leaning bias. If everyone in the room kind of has the same mindset, that'll make it easier to have these open discussions. I, I think there's a bit of a mix, um, especially among even among students it's interesting sometimes because you you listen to what to how they address issues and how they respond to issues around immigration and and uh, religion and the place of religion and secularism and all of that and it's it's uh, it's interesting you have a bit of both really? um, yeah you have a bit of both and I, I th personally in my experience uh, we, we still manage, there's no violence that came out of any discussion, thank goodness. Good. Yeah. <laughs> we still manage to, to engage in a dialogue. We still try to, to kind of understand the other's perspective. And I think this is very important. I Andre continued by speaking on the importance or the obligation for those with a platform of promoting the understanding of opposing perspectives, as well as the consequences of not employing that concept. I think that, um, let's say you, you take a professor or you take a politician or whatever, I think it's very important for us as people of influence, be it a politician, a professor, a, an academic, to really try to have this moderate, very sensible, reasonable voice that kind of understands where everybody's coming from and tries to really walk that fine line of of balance right. and that's extremely difficult yes. that's the most difficult uh, thing that there is because nothing is gained uh, through extremism on either side nothing is gained so i think that that we have to kind of uh, as as responsible citizens to try to find a reasonable way a middle ground way where we can discuss and really try to understand each other because without that kind of discussion our societies will will eventually fracture right. and uh, we're going to become more and more po polarized as groups and that 
polarization will eventually uh, create more competition between groups and that's where violence is generated often mm-hmm. because people want to have you know want to impose their, their ways of, of understanding the world right so the this world is essentially view. your your idea of an illiberal liberal in, within the uh, article yeah, you exactly it comes yes. down to that the dangers of that right you see um, because we we defined ourselves as as Canadians as being uh, you know the bearers of, of uh, a liberal type of democracy where people can reflect and, and, and there's freedom, uh, freedom of conscience, freedom of religion, uh, freedom of speech, all of these, uh, you know, things that we value as liberals. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, there's a danger. Uh, if we become intolerant, uh, uh, this is the antithesis of liberalism. Right. You have in the world um, democracies that are completely illiberal. It's not impossible to be democratic and not being liberal. You see, there are democracies that are illiberal. So yes. <laughs> that, are, that are totalitarian in their perspective. And, and you have the sense that people still are voting for certain individuals to be in power and there's still elections and things like that. You have that. Mm. But we don't want that. Wow. We, we cherish our liberties. We cherish our, our values of freedom and, and uh, what we've experienced as, as, you know, the Canadian experience and even in Quebec, how we conceive our societies. We cherish that. So let's not let's be careful not to uh, accentuate this fracture, but mm. trying to find bridges of reconciliation somehow or dialogue. We might never get to fully agree. But I think we need to seriously engage in a, a social dialogue yeah. uh, so that we uh, we don't lose our way. Again, I mean, I don't want to ooze too much on Andre, but <laughs> I really like his perspective here again. I mean, first, the fact that he's liberal yet espouses these views that uh, it's, it's, it's impressive to me. Like he's able to uh, kind of practice what he preaches, you know, and take a step back and look at the bigger picture. Um, the idea that we must find a middle ground way to discuss things or it'll lead to more polarization and like that's what can lead to violence and further to that as liberals we must be careful to not let that go too far and because that could end up like shunning the other side um, which basically is just as bad as what we're we fear from that other side so I don't know I think that's really impressive that he was I suppose that and yeah. It kind of speaks to the idea that we've discussed before and that we've seen um, on TV before about the poli- political spectrum not being linear, but in like a horseshoe shape. How it doesn't really matter like which side you're on, but the magnitude of your belief that really like determines the similarities between you and other people. So if you are, you know, a, mi- a moderate person on the left you're closer probably closer to a moderate person on on the right than a person who's extremely right yes definitely right yes it it's uh it's kind of speaks to that idea but the thing for me and he's touched on that was that being moderate isn't sexy you know it's not it doesn't get through to people people kind of in a way it seems these days that people want to have drama and apparently, because everything is so sensationalized these days, even the news, even reality is dramatized. Yeah. So it makes... It's, it's hard, yeah. There's like, 
in in the, on TV and in the news, or well, same thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> everything's so like left and right and polarizing. Mm. If you're on one side, it's okay to agree with some things on the other side. Mm. But it's almost that like you have to be tribal or like choose a team where yeah, if you are sort of centrist or relatively in the middle, it's yeah less sexy because you can't really fight as hard for one side or whatever. This is the only time that I will put Trump and sexy in the same sentence. I don't even know if you <laughs> use the word Trump, but yeah, there's no, there's really no way that those should be in the same sentence. I but agree. <laughs> but Unless in terms it's of maybe Ivanka Trump. But it's, okay, okay, okay. Although I will say in the last year that attraction has diminished. <laughs> no, but I mean... Like, she's a good-looking person. <laughs> Looks and brains. Anyways, go ahead. Well, I was just... <laughs> <laughs> Okay, that's cool with me. She is, she's a, a hot mama, but she's also a Trump. And, and you yes, know. exactly, that's, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, but t- what I'm saying essentially is that Trump embodies the exact opposite of what Andre is saying is most ideal for being a politician. You know, in that position of power, you should be. Um, encouraging moderate discussion, discussion, not encouraging opposition. But all this led us to wonder, how exactly do we achieve that kind of ideal moderate discussion we were talking about? It's kind of easier said than done. Some some people were asking me, how do we counter extremism? Yes. I think at in the end, it really boils down to education. But not just education in general. I think it's, it boils down to instilling in individuals critical thinking, where people will learn to be self-critical even of their own position. This is what critical thinking is. It's actually understanding the values of your position, but also the weaknesses of that position and the limits of that. And, and accepting that there are other worldviews and that you're not, uh, like your universe is not, uh, is not unique, that you're not the only one that, uh, you know, has the ultimate truth to everything, that there, there are something, you know, some things in other, uh, in, in where other people have a say that can have some type of value. And, and But this can only be achieved through critical thinking, can only be achieved through education. And I think even, you know, instilling these, these types of tools, uh, it has to start early in life. It has to start even in high school, mm-hmm. where people, you know, teachers and in the curriculum have to discuss these difficult issues at the level of the students, of course, but trying to, you know, look at the world. There's a world out there. There's not only my world. There are other people that think differently than I. Why do they think that way? Is it valuable? What is the value? What are the problems? When I teach in university, I have all sorts of people in my classes. And sometimes people come with a very, very narrow view of what constitutes religion and their, their, their worldview is the only unique worldview and everybody else uh, that is not part of their religious movement, for example, is wrong. When they finish my course, they don't have, most of them don't have that attitude anymore. Because what I've tried to do in my class is kind of, almost like in a Socratic way, ask questions about you know, common fundamentalist beliefs about religion. And eventually, this instills a certain amount of doubt 
in regards to one's own point of view. Mm-hmm. And people start reading other stuff, start questioning, you know, does that make sense? You know, maybe it does make sense. People that are camped in their extremist points of view, they know only their stuff. They don't know what others people and why other people think the way they do. Mm-hmm. They just shut them down. You know, that you don't think like me, you don't you don't talk like me, you don't have the same vision as I. I'm just going to shut you down. That's not the way that we're going to solve this. I think it's it's understanding the other, understanding where he comes from, uh, or where she comes from, and and understanding our own positions very very clearly. I'm like you. I don't like identifying myself. You know, I'm leftist. I'm, you know, I, I I'm just a person that's trying to reflect on on the current state of of our society and and trying to position myself. As a reasonable human being, right, uh, and and trying to walk that tight rope of moderation. Like you said, easier said than done, right? Critical thinking, ideal, but it's tough to have self doubt and and to see self doubt as a positive thing, especially when you've been conditioned to believe that being wrong is failure. You know, in the classroom environment, if you put up your hand and a teacher points at you and, and you're incorrect, then you have this feeling of shame. Even a lot of family environments. Yeah, absolutely. Any any environment where you put on the spot and, yeah. you know, there's there's just When shame. being wrong is wrong instead of a learning experience. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that there is definite value in, in rewiring ourselves to believe that wrongness isn't necessarily a failure. And I think that... Uh, like I said, that's easier said than done. I think that that goes down to people like him in the educational field that that uh, help condition from from a young age, like even younger than college, you know, elementary school, right. yeah, uh, even to to show students and how to deal with being wrong. Yeah, it's okay to be wrong. Like yeah. you're you're learning when you're wrong. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I think he made a couple points that really stood out to me. I mean extremists are camped in their views and their beliefs that anyone disagrees with them is wrong and becomes the enemy um that's so true but just really driving home like we can't that's not the manner we want to behave in that's not canadian that's not who we are and uh we can't just we can't just be like well an eye for an eye like they're doing this so we can do this you know and something that we share is not even even though like you're more left than i am but mm-hmm. i was i'm definitely still a liberal yeah um I don't know if I would associate as a Democrat if I were American, but that's I, def, I would vote Democrat, you know. But anyways, this that's not necessarily the point. Just it, it's best not to put oneself in, yourself in a box politically. Mm-hmm. But to use his words, I think he said like to walk a tightrope of moderation. That's a really important point. Um, like if you're in a conversation with someone, and the second you say. That you're liberal or liberal, liberal or or left wing. Um, yeah, that glass of wine, just <laughs> liberal or left wing. Yeah. Um, if they don't share those views, then it's kind of um, you're not gonna have a, a healthy discussion. Like we've all met that person that's so far left, or not necessarily far left, but just so far stuck in their left views, or so far stuck in their right views that. Uh, that that you can't really have an important discussion because you know whatever they're going to say based on what they say but i mean the most the most important thing for me that stood out from that from that was just the importance of critical thinking and you know like the idea that your universe isn't unique others have value in what they 
say and their their experiences like I, I, I completely agree with that and that's something that you kind of realize I, I hope that it's something that most people realize as they get older but it's sort of enlightening when you realize the other people think this why they think that oh like maybe you know you have those moments where like oh crap I was, oh shit I was wrong about this mm-hmm. um, so yeah I, I think that he makes all the really really good points yeah, absolutely. One thing, though, I mean, just judging by the general uh, political, like the partisanship in the U.S. right now, do people really get more moderate as they get older? I don't know. I just don't know. So we had we had a really inter- interesting discussion on on Trump and the conversation thwarting moral exceptionalism of him, his base, and and those with similar separate ideologies. And- it's it's hard to change the mind of a radical person mm-hmm. or an extremist. Um, you know, sometimes we hear about people talking uh, about uh, de-radicalizing individuals uh, that uh, have fallen into radical patterns of behavior. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's difficult to do because you know someone who thinks like a radical that thought process is in or uh, in his mind. You cannot extricate extricate. Uh, ideas from a, peop- a person's brain. That person at one point adhered to an extremist perspective. That person was convinced or convinced himself or herself from that perspective. Right. Uh, that person has to come to the conclusion that his or her own perspective is not going to work out. There are people that were extremists uh, at one point and changed their their ways of thinking. Uh, I'm thinking about, uh, I don't know if you know, uh, Christian Picciolini. Uh, He's a famous now uh, former neo-Nazi in the U.S., uh, for many years, he was actually uh, very much involved with right-wing neo-Nazi hate groups. And at one point, what he said was, it was interesting, how he changed his perspective. Today, he's uh, he's part of an organization called Life After Hate. And um, he said what, what changed him is people that he hated so much, groups that he hated so much, he started experiencing acceptance from these groups Mm -hmm. people started to just love him and that radically changed his perspective on these people he thought these people hated him he had a negative perspective on these people they just kind of tried to understand him and extended some kind of uh, sympathy towards his, his situation, just kind of accepted it. So this is what I mean, you know, trying to understand the other, trying to kind of enter into a dialogue, trying to understand where that person is coming from. Maybe at one point will, that will kind of pierce a hole in their, in their, in their wall of, of, you know, hate or, or bigotry. Um, you know, you, 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 people have to become convinced themselves. They convince themselves to adopt an, extreme perspe- an extremist perspective. They have to almost deconvert themselves. Right. And it's not what I, you know, I could say a lot of things and maybe it's going to work. But most of the time it's not because I say something. It's my actions. It's, it's, it's the way I deal with individuals that can probably eventually influence them. And a lot of people, you know, even the, the ideologies that they embrace, 
they don't even know the you know fully the ideologies that they embrace and when you start kind of deconstructing that slowly but not in an aggressive way but very slowly and methodically they start realizing i didn't know this i didn't know that this was part of you know my my way of thought or this was the root of why people adhere to this such such and such a uh, so, such and such ideology so i think it's very slowly patiently uh, that can be done why do you think trump has been so successful in the us despite his immoderate rhetoric we are in a political context that is unprecedented mm-hmm. in the us and i think that trump uh, you know as much as we would like to not admit that has a certain charisma uh, and he does, you know, reach out to certain people that feel uh, they have been left out. Mm-hmm. He meets certain needs. You know, he, 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 he gives the, the impression that everybody can experience and should experience the American dream. Because Trump, in a sense, is the incarnation of that. Mm-hmm. And, and people say... You know, if he says that, that means it's possible for me. Mm-hmm. And and a lot of people just grab onto that because they feel abandoned eh, right. by the system, by yeah. whatever. Um, it's the same. It's the same thing. This is why what we see with the rise of some right wing groups and and ideologies, it's all the same issue. Um, and his rhetoric resonates eh, when he talks yeah. about the wall. Uh, trying to block immigration, uh, when he talks about issues around uh, the Muslim ban, or even what I said in my article about the, his, his famous uh, uh, Clash of Civilization speech. Uh, mm-hmm. he, he really portrays that we are in this class of civilization, and if, we don't, if we're not careful, we're going to lose our civilization. Mm-hmm. We're going to lose uh, our culture. Uh, it, it's a myth. Uh, we're going to lose all of this, and and people are scared. And as people are scared, when when uh, you know they see, of course, there's immigration coming in, and people have different cultures and and different ways of understanding the world, and and different religions, and and because people are not very much informed about these things. You mentioned this sensation resonating in Canada as well. How legitimate are these perceived threats associated with right-wing extremism to Canadians? We have this in, in Canada. There's people that actually think that Canada is going to be, um, is, gonna, is, in, is under the threat of, of uh, becoming, uh, 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 under the threat of Islamization. Eh? You hear that, eh? where yeah. people think that Canada is going to become a, an Islamic nation. Come on, you can't be serious. Uh, you know, you can't be serious thinking in those terms. Uh, there are Muslim countries in the world yeah. where they have their own problems with this idea of Islamization. There are countries like you. you you remember the Arab Spring, eh? mm-hmm. uh, where uh, after the Arab Spring there was an election in Egypt. They voted in the Muslim Brotherhood. The Muslim Brotherhood is actually an Islamist party. Mm-hmm. It didn't even survive two years. They, they ousted the party out. Uh, even Muslim countries have a problem with this idea of full-fledged Islamization. And here in Canada, we're, in, we're under the threat of Islamization. It makes no sense. Don't, don't. It makes no sense. But you see, people that think that, people that think in those terms, they don't know what's happening elsewhere in the world.
You see, they just see the threat of, of Islam here. We're, hey, before there's any kind of even possibility <laughs> of having the Islamization of Canada, you'd need a Muslim government for that. We're not gonna. We're not. We're not there. We're very, 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 very far from that in Canada. <laughs> so, so I think that's you know, it's it's ignorance, it's fear, it's a sense of uh, you know uh, being scared of losing uh, one's culture, and Trump plays on this very, very well. He got elected. Yeah. On these, on on that kind of platform, mm -hmm. and uh, that's what it is, and it spills in over, unfortunately, into into Canada sometimes. That's true. So, why would people grasp onto these short-sighted ideas, despite them being counterproductive to reducing this exact Islamization that they fear? Because you're in this kind of scheme of of conflict of of ideologies or this uh, uh, clash of civilization, you're kind of blinded. Mm. Uh, by this, by this, uh, this counterintuitive uh, uh, element, you're absolutely right. This is what actually what jihadists actually want. Yeah. When when you when, when when Western politicians mm. are actually embracing this kind of discourse, they're actually giving. Um, they're, 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 they're actually um, like uh, proving the point yeah. Yeah, exactly. of jihadists themselves. Yeah. The jihadists are saying this. Yes, it's a class of civilization. It's it's a war between the West and, and Islam. Trump is playing and falling perfectly into that trap. Yeah. And, and politicians that embrace this kind of discourse are just plainly falling into that trap. So it's not it's not beneficial in any in any way. So what do you think happens with Trump? There's so many scandals going on with his administration, his family, <laughs> his just general orange presence. Yeah. <laughs> like, how sustainable is this? Maybe he will be impeached, but is that I've the recently, ideal for you? I know that, I know that people, um, I know that his base, which is a lot of uh, evangelical fundamentalist conservatives. Uh, are reacting to this possibility. I, I heard uh, recently um, uh, a fundamentalist a preacher by the name of Jim Baker, who was very, very popular in the 90s. He got caught for a scandal, sex scandal, and money, money thing in the 90s. But then he, he did some time and then came back as a preacher. Don't ask me how he did this, but it, it actually worked, and people are following him and everything. And recently he was commenting on his show that if... Uh, Trump is impeached. Uh, Christians will 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 come out of the shadows, and there will be a civil war. Wow! So was he kind of implying that if because he he sense he senses that if Trump is impeached, Christian the 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 goal of that is to silence the Christian the Christian right. You see, to kind of shut it down. So if he's impeached. Uh, the only way that Christians can really raise their voice is to come out of the shadows. And he quoted what's what's fascinating. He he quoted a passage from the New Testament, saying, "Faith without works is dead." Did he mean that Christians needed to prove their faith by engaging in works, which would correspond to this idea of? rising up and engaging in civil it almost implied that right so uh, there might this might happen i don't know 
uh, it's hard to know. There's a lot of he's, he's trying to calm down the issue with all of, you know side news with with the, the Russian probe and everything. You know, yeah. it's coming back to haunt him constantly. Yeah. It might it that might bring him down. We we don't know, mm -hmm. um, but uh, it's hard to imagine that we're going to be able to survive another three years. It's not even been a year yet. Yeah. And we're kind of just like overwhelmed. I know, like there's it feels not like it's a been day. four years. <laughs> like you have to think like another four. Like it's it's it, it's mind boggling. Uh, it's almost impossible to think. But um, that's it. It's it's uh, and he's very ambiguous, eh? In his in his mm -hmm. speeches, sometimes he's he's you almost think he's 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 gaining his senses, and then he says something stupid again. Yeah. Uh, it's 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 Without like a teleprompter. No. <laughs> <laughs> there's no hope I, there's no hope I think um, the Americans voted for Trump um, they're going to have to survive this somehow yeah. and have to rethink uh, what's going to happen in four years mm -hmm. the thing is even the Democratic Party has to renew itself it yeah. really has to think strategically because it didn't work with Hillary mm -hmm. it actually people did not trust Hillary right. so what are you going to do where, who are you going to find? Maybe in the end, the U.S. needs another party. You know, it's always been two parties. Mm -hmm. Maybe there needs to be a third party. I don't know. But uh, we're living in very, very interesting times. Yeah. We cannot be, we're definitely not bored. We are definitely not bored. <laughs> <laughs> okay, there was a lot there. There yeah, was a lot. Shit. Uh, but there's a lot on my mind, so I'm just wanting get off these Go points before interject whatever you feel like you would like to <laughs> so he initially talked about picciolini christian picciolini christian picciolini great name uh he talked about how acceptance and love is what brought him back from radicalization mm -hmm. um i think that's nice thought i agree definitely that people need to deconvert themselves and um, I think Andre raised a good point about lack of knowledge surrounding ideologies, mm -hmm. um, and uh, personally, I think that applies to other aspects of life too, um, not just with ridiculous ideologies. But you can apply it to everyday life. But anyways, for this argument, um, do you think showering love and affection um, on those who hate us and like want to kill us and believe that they're going to come back in the next life, um, so death to them is? different thing like do you think that showering them with love is is a good idea like i i agree with the points andre's making but mm. like do you think it's like i'm i guess like is it a, like a smart idea or is it just like a like a An good ideal. like a well-intentioned ideal yeah see here's the thing i really do think that there's value in empathy you know what i said earlier about like and, and what andre said about empathy and critical thinking I think that people, depending on what group they're surrounded by, will emulate their group. So if you, if, if a person ends up surrounded by people that show love and show empathy and show, you know, this, this just question, you know, asking questions, interest in people of opposing perspectives, I think that that ultimately rubs off on a person. But that person has to have some amount of being receptive. I, I think right. that there might be a threshold, you know? There, yeah. there might be a point at which there is no return. Yeah, to your point of, like, it, a person can have an effect on 
other people. Like, we see the complete opposite of that with Trump. Mm-hmm. Andre even pointed out, like, he uses these, I mean, Andre didn't use these terms, but he, he uses his, like, sort of fear-mongering. Like, he, he has charisma, and I think that's important that Andre is able to, another point where, like, he's liberal, and I think, I speak, I'm going to speak for Andre and say, he, like, I am liberal, and most liberals and most people, most general people just don't <laughs> like Trump. Yeah. So I'm going to come to this to the point where he probably doesn't like Trump, but just so point out, like, you know, he does have charisma. He's good at appealing to his base, however however small it may be at this point. Still, he's really good at appealing to that base and mm-hmm. getting that base riled up, mm-hmm. you know? Um, is that counterintuitive? He's good at getting people riled up about... Like, one of the things he got elected on was fear-mongering against Muslims. Like, yeah, yeah, that got him in the office, and it it might get him support from a certain percentage of Americans, but, like, it's sort of what we go back to earlier. That's exactly what jihadists want, isn't it? Like, Mm -hmm. is that smart? Well, um, I mean, that is a good question. Is it smart? Probably not. I mean, depending on what your end goal is, if your end goal is just to um, create fear and allow that fear to propel people to find uh, common commonality with other people in that same fear and to join in fear and, and isolating that specific group, then yeah, it's a smart tactic for doing that. <laughs> but is it a smart tactic for national freaking security? Probably not. It's kind of counterintuitive, right? It, like, it's, it's counterintuitive to what Americans should want. Yeah. But is it counterintuitive to what Americans want? I don't know. Well, that's one of the good things about being in Canada. And what I loved when Andre was like, when he was talking about uh, the Islamization of Canada, Mm -hmm. he was like, are you kidding me? I love that passion. He made a great point about Egypt. Like even um, like Muslim... Muslim Brotherhood. Muslim countries, even there, it's rare and difficult for an Islamic uh, leader to get in power. And it Mm -hmm. it didn't work there. Mm -hmm. There's huge issues that came from that. It's just, it's just not, and to think that it could happen in Canada, I mean... It's ignorant. Uh, it is ignorant, but there's just those, there that, that pocket of Canada. And that was, like, the main thing we really want to touch at, right? Is, mm-hmm. is this, this rise we've seen in America partially and largely due in part to Trump's rhetoric and kind of allowing this and fostering this just feeling and passion against people that are different than you like is that it could that happen in canada and i think it is things like that like yeah you know like things like that are really important because it ties that it ties that together mm-hmm. i mean I, I think that it's times like this that you really realize as canada uh as canada. As, or sorry as 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 people of canada as canadians that we're really not different from americans in a lot of ways we're human we we desire uh acceptance and um, whether or not we get acceptance through positive means or negative means you know that's that's kind of up to society in a way up to the people we're we're surrounded by Um, and in a lot of cases the the media that we surround ourselves with the opinions we surround ourselves with so it's really important you know, it's really, really freaking important that people like Andre are put in a position of power and influence so that he can propel his message of moderation to students, to people like us. Um, and, you know, maybe maybe to that one student or, or person who hears this and, and thinks, 
you know, I, I, you know, I, I want to be, I, I don't want to be too regimented in, in my beliefs. I want to question myself. And, and I think that there's there's true power in that. And I think Andre speaks to that really, really, really freaking well. He does. And I loved off the top when you started with, well, he might be impeached. <laughs> but then when he explained what might happen if he gets impeached, mm-hmm. when he was talking about how oh, the yes. rise up of evangelists and Christians <laughs> if Trump's impeached, causing a yes. civil war, and their reasoning is that if Trump is impeached, it is to silence the Christian voice. It's horrifying. I mean, that in itself, of course, that's absurd, right? Trump could get impeached for so many reasons. Like, mm. to list off the reasons would take another hour. Exactly. This podcast would be even longer. Mm-hmm. So that in itself is absurd, but it's not unrealistic, you know? No. Like the It's not just like your normal, everyday Christian that's going to church on Sunday or on, on Christmas, you know? It's... People that live and breathe. It's the deep... Mm-hmm. And Trump is using them, quite frankly. Like, mm-hmm. he's not that. No. Um, he's flip-flops so often Oh, he on flip-flops. His... Like, he's like the wind. Yes, I agree. He's flip-flops <sighs> so many times on what he believes. Just to appeal to whatever base serves him in the moment. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's really frustrating as Canadians to watch... Americans being taken advantage of like this because you guys really are you, Americans really are our, our big brother yeah I mean, we, we rely are, on like, them so much you can't deny like, they may have lost a bit of the clout and distinction as the world power but like quite frankly they are the world leader so mm-hmm. you can't deny that like I'm so proud to be Canadian I'd rather 100% rather be Canadian than American right now you know mm-hmm. but you can't deny their place in the world and mm-hmm. and it's just so interesting, like you said, that he'll flip and flop, and now we're seeing him working with Democrats, mm-hmm. which is so strange, but it's not, again, like, it's not surprising. Like, he'll he'll, he'll work with anyone that's that's going to play to his ego. Mm-hmm. And, like, maybe he has a, a, ter- a, a long-term pl- goal with that. I don't know, though. Andre raised an, impor- an interesting issue that we've actually talked a lot about. What are Democrats going to do in the U.S.? Mm. Like it, it, it's almost as disappointing. It's almost as disappointing as what Republicans are doing to the United States. The lack of what Democrats are doing. Mm-hmm. And I mean, Andre discussed the idea of a third party. I mean, whether realistic or not, it's it's sort of, in a way, in my opinion, I'm not an expert, but in in my opinion, it's sort of in a way where America is going. Like Obama, you can make the case he was sort of a centrist, um, in a way. And despite Trump's extreme polarization and some of the ridiculous things he does that are on the very far right, <laughs> um, he has—he's not a—he's not a typical Republican, you know. Um, so the, I feel like it's almost going towards not a third party, but what are Democrats going to do? They need—they need to have some sort of voice. It's—it's it's all just like rip on Trump, rip on Trump. That's great. I fucking hate Trump, and I, I've never hated someone so much that I've never met mm-hmm. in my life, but, like, what are the Democrats going to do? They need to start coming up with a plan, and, like, I know Bernie is talking about his universal health care plan, and that's all well and good, but they're, like, who who's running? Who's running? I think, I think when I, when I look at this as a big picture as well going forward, I think that, like you say, being Democrat or the Democratic Party needs a complete rebrand 
they need to redefine their leadership and, and what is ideally in leadership. They have to be more vocal about their uh, their moderate beliefs. They need to have some critical thinking and real and think about have what some this kind of and be, be, yeah, like be the bigger person. That's what being liberal and Democrats are supposed to be about. Like realize what this country needs and how you're going to do that. And if you're hearing any snorting, that's our French bulldog. <laughs> It's she not me, I loves swear. to snort. But, <laughs> yeah, like, having that... Yeah. Like, come, come on. Yeah. What, what, to, yeah. To use Andrew's term, come on! Like, come we're on. waiting for something. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, like, with Trump's dominance in the media for some pretty suspect shit, it certainly is an interesting time to be having these these conversations. Absolutely. You know? Um, so to get back to Andre... <laughs> The last thing we discussed with him was his ongoing research project regarding ISIS propaganda, which is something that we found really, really interesting. Yeah, we not only wanted to delve deeper into his findings, but also to find the catalyst that spurred his interest in this particular topic. The thing is, what intrigues me, first of all, is the, uh, the, uh, the success of the Islamic State to actually have attracted so many people to to leave their countries like there's an unpre- unprecedented number of what we call western foreign fighters that join ISIS since since the uh, declaration of the caliphate in 2014 it's estimated that the 40,000 people that left their countries and joined ISIS uh, this has been possible i think uh, because of their uh, their technologically they are technologically savvy mm-hmm. they they produce very, very high quality videos and, and memes and, you know, they, they, have, they have the ability to reach a younger generation that is actually very much implemented in social media and, 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 and just, just propagate their message this way. Um, what fascinates me is, is the, of course, the, 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 uh, the effectiveness of their propaganda machine how they can contradict news uh, with their own uh, ways of interpreting events. Uh, we've, we've seen this multiple times. Huh? Um, I wrote a piece with one of my PhD students on, uh, there was an event uh, earlier this year of, the, of a, a destruction of a mosque, a, a famous mosque in Mosul, Al-Nuri Mosque. It's the mosque actually where... Um, um, Abu Bakr uh, al-Baghdadi, the, uh, the current uh, leader of Islamic State, first made his uh, statement about the caliphate. Uh, his first, uh, his first uh, sermon was in that mosque. And that mosque was destroyed um, earlier in the summer. And um, people were saying, uh, you know, it's the Islamic State that, that blew up the mosque. And the Islamic State was saying, no, no, it's the, actually it's the coalition that blew up the mosque. Mm -hmm. And they had images and videos and photographs where you could doubt what the coalition was actually saying. Mm -hmm. Because the coalition, they just, they just uh, gave a statement that it was ISIS that destroyed the mosque, but um, they never provided any footage. They never provided uh, images, nothing. ISIS provided all of that. Mm-hmm. And, and they were shaping 
the opinion of their sympathizers. Mm -hmm. You see, with the what they had as evidence. So we're analyzing that. We're, we're also analyzing uh, the ideology that permeates their propaganda. A lot of people think that, for example, um, religious belief has nothing to do with this type of stuff, but we're seeing... We're seeing the evidence to the contrary of that. Uh, they're referring constantly to their tradition, at least their interpretation of their tradition. So we're trying to kind of discern, uh, discern that and decipher that at the same time. So this is why it's interesting to kind of understand how they go about uh, constructing their, their ideology and constructing their, their image. Uh, it's all a brand. It's a brand. It's essentially branding themselves mm -hmm. and, and, you know, and, and trying to understand the mechanisms by which the propaganda uh, serves as a way to attract uh, members and sympathizers to their cause. Really, really interesting stuff. We both learned a ton, I think. Safe to say. Yeah. And with that, that is all for our very first episode. <laughs> We would like to thank Andre for joining us. If you would like to ask him any questions or follow his current research, you can find him on Twitter at Prof A Gagne, that's at P-R-O-F-A-G-A-G-N-E, or on the Concordia faculty website. Thank you, Andre. And thank you so much for listening to this episode of Insufficient Funds. You can find us on iTunes and SoundCloud or follow us on Twitter and YouTube as at Insufficient Funds for episode updates and to let us know your uh, your thoughts on the topics discussed or to laugh at us. That, that's yeah. also... Negative, positive. Yeah. Any feedback as well. Critical thinking. Yes. Bye. Bye. Make the case. Why should we feel bad for these millennials? I'm broke. Anybody else broke? So the numbers in terms of earnings speak for themselves, but that's really only the beginning of their problems. Student debt. No work ethic. Housing. No job. Credit card debt. No discernible skills. Are you have insufficient funds. Well, it's a good way to put it, too. I agree with that.